0: In 1987, the month was June. And what has become an iconic speech was then not heavily covered. The great communicator, Ronnie Reagan, stood at Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. Through decades of Cold War tensions, He stood at this gate that had been a a scar, a symbol of oppressive regimes and communist rule in Eastern Europe and in divided East Germany from West. And at this Berlin Wall, President Reagan said, in the 1950s, Khrushchev, Khrushchev predicted We will bury you. Think of uh, Rocky. But in the West today, he said, we see a level of prosperity and well-being unprecedented in human history. But in the communist world, we see failure. There is one sign, though, Reagan thought, as he continued in this speech against the urging of his advisors to make a claim. See, because Gorbachev, the general secretary of the Communist Party, had been talking about new transparency within the regime, had been talking about a reorientation of their configuration. And so Reagan said, if they are serious, there's something you can do. One sign that the Soviets could make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. And then he addressed him directly there in front of 45,000 people and cameras. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek the prosperity of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He threw down the gauntlet. Within a couple years, the wall was torn down. And some would say that was a defining moment of the presidency of Ronald Reagan. The beginning of the end of the Cold War. And he had a sense as he was saying these words that this wall was a symbol that divided. That walls have to come down in order for people to be together. For there to be true human flourishing. For there to be true joy and well-being. The things that divide have to be abolished. They have to be removed altogether. And what's amazing as we consider that real-life story is to consider one that's even realer and liver, only much older. That God Himself is a wrecking ball. is a wrecking ball demolishing the age-old barriers that have existed between His people and the rest of the nations. His people, the chosen, the elect, and those that they would come to regard as the unclean, those Gentile dogs. The Apostle Paul, when referring to this demolition, says he has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Because every time there's a wall, every time there's division between people, there is, on the opposite sides of those walls, there's suspicion. There's a need for self-protection. There's a Barrier that is intended to create distance. And God, we learn in the story that Emma just admirably read, has an intention that blew the minds of the apostles, blew the minds of Cornelius and his family, this Roman centurion, to indicate that his intentions for this planet that he's reclaiming are more broad and far spread than they had ever quite realized. Did you capture the story? I just had Emma read the summary in Acts chapter 11. But so that you can get a flavor for it, let me recap for just a moment this wall demolition that happened. Peter, you know this dude, one of the apostles, upon this rock I will build my church. And I give you the keys of the kingdom, he says to Peter and to the apostles. This is Peter who denied the Lord three times while he had a vision three times. He's staying at the house of Simon, the taxidermist. He was getting his buck... Wait. No, 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 no. He's a tanner, which didn't stuff animals, but he skinned them. Probably didn't smell too good at his house. Peter at lunchtime was up on the roof and he was praying. And he was hungry. And as he was praying in his hunger, he fell into a trance and he has this vision of this ark, this sheep coming down. And on it are all sorts of animals which to the Jewish mind would be clean animals and unclean animals. But of course, they would all be unclean. You have a gander at Leviticus 11 because of the pollution principle in algebra, the transitive property, the associative property, one of those. Distributive property. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll have to talk to Kayler about it later. A clean animal around an unclean animal would get polluted and contaminated, so they're all basically unclean. And the voice from heaven says to him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. He realizes this is either the voice of God or an angel. And he says, Lord, no way. No way. I've never, I've never broken our dietary laws. Nothing unclean has ever passed Over these lips. And he hears this word. And he hears it three times, this vision. Do not call unclean anything that God has made clean. Do not. You can imagine it reverberating in his ears because it begins to affect the way he thinks and what he's about to do. Do not call unclean anything that God has called clean. This happens three times. He snaps out of it. Well, apparently what was happening at the same time is uh, this Roman centurion is also having a vision. God has noticed him. He's a God-fearer, we're told. A God-fearer would be somebody who had attached himself to the synagogue, had recognized, like, unlike other Romans... That there weren't some pantheon of gods. There weren't all kinds of gods. There was one God, one true God. The God of Israel was the God of all the universe. And they had declared their loyalty to Him. And they would pray to Him. And they would practice Jewish forms of piety, like praying and giving, fasting. They just didn't go all the way, become a true Jew by getting certain parts of themselves lopped off. Circumcision was a detestable practice to the nations and it seemed barbaric, foreign. So these God-fearers didn't get circumcised, but they would be attached to the community in this way and worshipers of the true God. And this Cornelius, we're told, is visited and told this, God's been paying attention to your prayers. God's noticed the offerings you've made. You can't make sacrifices at the temple, but you've made gifts to the poor, and they caught God's eye. Now, send for this dude, Peter. He's staying at a tanner's house. See, once again, just like in Saul's conversion story, God's delegating, he's choreographing, he knows people's addresses. He knows the details and contours of lives. He's listening to prayers. He knows where people are staying. He's engrafting a number of different voices and people into this story that he's telling. Peter is sent for these guys. Come to Peter. They tell him about this vision. So Peter decides to go to the house of Cornelius where Cornelius has gathered a whole bunch of his kinfolk. And Peter, who ordinarily wouldn't go in the house of a Gentile dog, goes in because he started to ruminate What does this vision mean? We're told he thinks about what does this vision mean. He saw it three times. Don't call unclean anything that God has called clean. If God has called something clean, then I have to share his evaluation. He's talking about food. Could he be talking about something else? And then Peter gets this envoy of people sent from Cornelius who said, God wants you to come talk to us. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he tells them how to get forgiven. He tells them that Jesus is the Messiah and that He's the one they're looking for. And as He's talking, God comes to move into the neighborhood of each of their lives. The Holy Spirit falls on them while Peter's preaching and the light bulb goes off for him once again and he says, Holy cow! That's in the Greek. Holy cow! God gave the Holy Spirit to us, and we were there at Pentecost. All these Holy Spirit tricks people speaking languages they didn't know, and now here's a little Gentile Pentecost. The people outside, foreigners. God came to live in their neighborhood, and they're declaring the wonders of God in different languages and different tongues. And he later comes to see that means if God accepts us by giving us the Holy Spirit. If He gives the Holy Spirit to them, that means He accepts them too. Wow! It's for everybody. God wants a connection with everybody. All kinds of people. Unclean people, clean people, religious people, irreligious people, dirty people, clean people, tall people, short people, fat people, skinny people, people who fouled up royally, And people who don't realize they've fouled up royally yet and don't think they're capable of it because they haven't had a self-introduction. All those people God is welcoming. And so when he goes to Jerusalem and he's talking to the folks there, the first thing that happens to him, as you might expect from a religious community, is he gets criticized. Criticized. He comes in, isn't it wonderful what God's done? Why'd you go in their house? Why did you step foot in a bar to tell people about Jesus in a bar? It's not as drastic as that, but they criticize them. You went into the house of unclean unbelievers. And you ate with them. You defiled yourself. You broke the law. And Peter shares the story. Look what I've learned. Look what I've learned. Now, here's the question. What does this have to do with us? John Steinbeck has warned us, has told us in East of Eden that a story has to be about every man or it won't it won't keep getting told. It won't latch on unless it's about every woman and every child and every man, unless you can see yourself in it. So why is this story something that we're talking about here in 2013? Well, here's some things I think you can, you can glean from it. As we eavesdrop on Peter's realizations, one of the things that you see most clearly that Peter realized is that God is up to the removing of barriers. He's up to the demolition of barriers. The things that divide people from one another. The things that divide people from Him. The things that divide and alienate people. That create suspicion and bitterness and division. He's up to destroying those things. That's why the whole ministry that the Apostle Paul has can be summed up in a word. The ministry of reconciliation. That's what God's doing. He's restoring and reconciling all things we're told to himself. People to themselves, people to one another, people to God, people to their work, people to the earth. Everywhere relationships are busted. Everywhere they've gone sour. Everywhere there's hostility. His intention is to eradicate the barrier. But you could say this way, every thing that God is up to is about creating connection. I heard this great line the other day from a man, it was shared with me from a man whose name I can't remember, it's not my idea. And he was talking about divorce. Divorce? Why are you talking about divorce? Well, because it happens. But it's just a sign of the kind of alienation that happens on a personal micro level. And it happens rippled out in all kinds of areas, culturally and societally and among nations and such. And he said this, when it comes right down to it, when people get divorced, their goals have changed. They haven't fallen out of love. They've just changed their goals. Because everybody in a relationship either has the goal of connection or they have the goal of distance. And if your goal ceases to be one of connection, if your goal is to have distance between you and your spouse or distance between you and another person or distance between you and God, then every single thing that happens will prove a justification for you to maintain your distance. That's why if you're at odds with somebody and you want to be at odds with them, you are going to misinterpret everything they say. You're going to spin everything they say. They're going to do the same thing to you. If you're at odds with God, you're going to find all manner of reasons to shake your fist at him. Anybody you're at odds with, if you want to remain at odds with them, you're going to find every reason possible to keep the distance going. You'll misinterpret, you'll misapply, you'll judge motivations You'll assume that you're God and you can see right smack dab through the corridor of every human's decision-making process, and you know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Never mind what they say. If that's what you're wanting, if you want distance, that's what you've got, and the whole human race, indigenous to its heart, is to create this kind of distance It's part of our rebellion. It's what we do with each other. It's why there's so many dang fights and wars. The contagion of divorce multiplies and ripples and cascades throughout large countries as well. But if you're up to connection, if you want to be connected to someone, you'll find every reason you can to maintain the connection. You'll forgive. You'll charitably view what they say. You'll make allowances. When they say something horrible, you'll say, oh, they couldn't have meant that. When you have a loyalty, it affects your hearing. It's a filter for your eyes. And here's the thing. What Peter realized is that God has this loyalty to all kinds of people because everybody is in rebellion to Him. And He wants to be connected to them. He wants His church, this new movement, this administration that He's setting up to be about getting people connected to one another and getting them connected to God. Not living defensive lives not living trying to view every single person as an enemy or God as an enemy but viewing God as a friend and viewing others as people like us who need to receive the beneficence of God so what does the story have to do with us as Peter thinks of it as Peter sees the Gentiles receiving God's life in their life he deduces that God has accepted them just like he's accepted us. He's purified, he'll say later, their hearts by faith. Just as he purified our hearts, God wants this connection. So as you think about that, Peter thought about that. He had this vision. God didn't say, this is exactly what the vision means. He had to think about what the vision meant. And then as he acted in obedience Things became more and more clear to him, which is a free giveaway line. There's a lot of things you don't understand when you obey. The more you obey, the more you understand. That's very often the case. But you know what happens here? Let's think about church, being a church. And God wanting connection. And God invading Peter's prayers in a tranced vision. And God invading Cornelius' prayers. And last week, God intercepting the apostle Paul, formerly Saul. Is that God's dreams are determinative for the church, not ours. Of course, that can be applied to our church. It could be applied to your relationships. It can be applied to your business. It's God's dream that's determinative. The more you're trying to hang on and fulfill your own, you're just going to be white-knuckled and angry and frustrated all the time because things aren't going to work the way you want them to. I was warned when I came here. 13 years ago, here's a cynical thing for someone to say to you, to a young 28-year-old person who was scared to death. Be careful. Church plants breed malcontents. Happy birthday. <laughs> church plants breed malcontents, he said. Now, this was spoken to me by someone who had planted a number of church. He didn't know anybody here, we didn't have any here. But you know what his idea was? Is that when a church gets started, when it's new, when it's a blank sheet of white paper, people come to it and without realizing they think, Finally, at long last I have opportunity. I have opportunity to realize Christian community as I have always known it should be realized. My vision of what the church should be can be realized right here in real time. And in the early days, people, they're kumbayaing together. It's sweet. They're all together. We're on the board with each other. We have the same vision. And then you know what happens? At some point, you have to make a decision about something, about anything. It can be a big thing or a little thing, a silly thing or an important thing. But at some point, you know, you got to make a decision. What song do you sing? Who gets to do this? Where do you do it? What kind of space should you be in? Who gets to be in charge? You make a decision. As soon as you make a decision, someone says, FOUL! You're not following the vision! You committed a Foul! And it happens all over. It happens in churches all over. That's why people leave on Sunday mornings and they have critiques. Now here's what that church needs to do better. Because you know. One of the great gifts to me. One of the great gifts to me being a pastor here is realize, man, I can't control Nothing. And I purposefully am using grammar in the wrong way there. I can't control nothing. I can't, as Hutch would say, control nothing. Can't. Can't is a great word. And I can't, or can't, because this is God's dream to realize. Oh, and how freeing it is to realize, wow, as Peter did. See, John Stott says the conversion of Cornelius is a story way more about the conversion of Peter than it is about Cornelius. Cornelius came into living contact with Jesus Christ and his life was forever changed and he now has eternal life. But Peter and the whole church, their vision was changed because God put this detour in the middle of it. Nobody was planning on a mission to the Gentiles. Nobody was planning on a mission to unclean types. That was not on their radar screen. And all of a sudden, because of Peter's vision, because of his experience with Cornelius, because of the little Gentile Pentecost that came, Peter started to realize, and they had a council in Acts 15, he started to realize it is by grace that all of us are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, whether religious people or non-religious people, whether we're Jews our whole lives, or whether we never thought about God for a minute. We all stand beneath the cross. An equal kind of need. This leveling force means that God's favor is open to everyone. Participation in the new world that God is creating is open to any kind of person, anywhere, no matter what. So they began sending churches to the Gentiles. Planting, sending missionaries to the Gentiles. Because they started realizing, oh, they thought about it. This is what God wants. He wants connection, not distance. So, if God wants connection, not distance, if God is is granting repentance unto life, even to the nations, they say, even to the dogs, even to those outside, what does it say to us? It means that God, who is busting up barriers, has something to say to us about how we view people on the outside of the world. Outside of the church, I'm sorry. It's very easy for a church, it's very easy for an ardent Christian community to start to think of the people out there as icky. Contaminants. Pollutants. I cannot breathe the air of their lives or I will get a respiratory infection in my soul, we say. I don't want my kids to be around them. They might get dirty in their heart. Dirt, dirtier. It's very easy as people have popularized the expression and holy huddles and Christian ghettos to start to think we're the clean ones and they're icky. But if you start to think as the Apostle Peter did and as those who wound up listening to him did and they were convinced and then they praised God, okay, I guess God's opening this thing up to anybody. Then all of a sudden part of us joining his mission is saying we gotta be about barrier busting too. We gotta be about moving outside. And so you some of you complain about all them unbelievers you gotta work with. What an amazing gift. It's a curse to have to work with only Christians. Don't just don't do that. That's a joke. That's a joke. Don't write an email. But it is a gift that you've been sent out and you work. You get to be around people who haven't given God the time of day with whom God wants a connection and you might be the bridge. You might be the privileged carrier of Christ to them to get to point them to a way they can end their cosmic alienation and their cosmic orphanhood that they could have their sins obliterated and they could have as meaning seekers a reason to live as an image bearer of God. You've been placed in their lives. You know, one of the most exciting things to me, a few anecdotes is I think back to our church and I think, okay, these are signs to me that good things are happening. One time we had a friend, a friend of the church that we had met in the community and we'd gotten involved in their lives in a little bit and he came to a Wednesday night supper and prayer with this live-in lady and he was standing outside and it was time to eat and he was standing there at the grill and we said, hey, come on in. Why don't you come on in and eat? And he said, Well, I'm on. You know, I'm I'm a little bit drunk. I'm just going to stay out here. I'm a little bit drunk. And I heard that story and I thought, Yes! I love it that we've got a guy coming to the Wednesday night supper a little bit drunk. That's a good sign. Another man told me one Sunday morning an occasional sporadic. Visitor with whom many people in our church have been working and hanging out. A man of trouble passed and he said to me, I told again his live-in lady, I told her we needed to come to church because that way we wouldn't spend all morning fighting. And I thought, I'm going to tell our people, that's a great reason to come to church. You won't fight with your spouse or your live-in girlfriend. If you come to church, you can't. It's It's impolite. You're sitting there quietly. oh, but it makes me happy because if we're doing this thing right, if we're doing this thing right, then we're going to find ourselves with all kinds of impolite people who aren't living according to the standards that we think they ought to be living by. And we ought to have ourselves altered as we start to think, wait a second, wait a second, God likes to remove barriers. He wants all kinds of people. And his family. And he sends us out to be the bridges of that. One way you can think of it is the way the Apostle Paul started thinking of it. When he talks about disputes, and I think you can apply this to the world. He's talking about disputes. He says, why would you destroy your brother for whom Christ died? It's my favorite description of how to think about another person. You ever think about that? Think about somebody that drives you crazy. It might be President Obama. I think what would happen right now in all the heated debate about Obamacare and funding it or not funding it and all the vitriol if the people screaming at each other, whichever side you're on, if they thought, in the moment they're screaming, they thought, but he's my brother for whom Christ died. This person I'm actively publicly humiliating and acting like I hate is my brother for whom Christ died. Any potential enemy might be a brother for whom Christ died, a sister for whom Christ died. Somebody that Christ said, you know what? I'm going to spill my blood so that they can know eternal life. I would like to administer my grace to them. It'll change the way you think about the outside world. The most annoying people you have to work with, the most frustrating political figures and leaders in your life, bosses, coaches, teachers, co-workers, brothers for whom Christ died. When you start to think of it that way and you start to think God has let me in on this connection, He's just been gracious to me. You know what's going to happen. You're going to do what Bob did. What about Bob? i got to refer to it. I just got to watch the whole thing. I hadn't seen it in 20 years. There's this great scene... Where Bob, this neurotic person who's afraid of everything, filled with multitudinous phobias, one night as he's staying in Dr. Leo Marvin's house and he's connecting, and he feels apart.